start. <laughs> There's some really vital stuff I just said. Yeah. <laughs> it's 7.33. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> um, today we have a little teacher meeting after lunch sometimes, and <clears throat> we were just kind of talking about what's our sense of kind of the flow of the retreat, which is, you know, I mean, everybody's completely different. So, of course, it doesn't really make sense, the flow of the retreat. But at the same time, we always do that. And there's a, a sort of a sense. But the sense we had, and it really matched kind of what I've been feeling the last couple of days, is you could call it, the, we're calling it, I think, how he was calling it the sine wave. Where really, if you, he doesn't know clue what I'm talking about, where if we look at everybody, there's a sense of that people's practice are going like up and down, and some and at different people are at different places, both each of you at changing places and at one time all in different places. But where the sine wave being where there's a period where a time when you're having insight or it's flowing. There's not much Velcro, nothing is sticking, you know, or it's really the, it, it, quite tender, or the metta's flowing, that kind of, just no problem. You really understand, you're seeing, oh, these are the patterns, and I see their patterns, and they come and go, and I really know that. And the Anicca that Andrea was talking about is like really seeing, yeah, that, yeah that's really how it is. And then in the kind of trough of the sine wave, which are equal, because you need both, that's the thing, we're watching it you know, like slowly deteriorate <laughs> with full awareness. And you know, you're really describing, you know, you can really see a little thought came in and it was a little stickier, even though it was the same thought, and a kind of mood came in and this pattern which you've seen a million times, and I know it's not really, I know it's just a pattern, and just a little oomph, but not and you just kinda watch it go down to the trough and all of a sudden, you know, it's stuck, it's solid, we really believe it, and we get riddled with either frustration or doubt or fear. It's what I call hitting a wall, like in, in a, a big time, not just a, a little bit of a hard time. We all have that. Well, we all hit the wall, too. But it's what I want to talk about tonight is really that place where we really lose our trust, if not our motivation, if not our commitment, where there's this really deep believing of whatever personality view, really, that's all that's happening in that moment. But it's the personality thing that we really, bottom line, place our faith in. And it's come back, and we are riddled with frustration, with doubt. And even because you've seen it more, you know, and seen it coming in, and can actually describe the causes and conditions and how it starts and what triggers it and how it comes in and how you're seeing you're in it, but somewhere deep in there, it's not okay. And not that it should be okay. That's part of believing it is that it's not okay. But when it has the effect, when someone's been practicing quite a bit, not just new practitioners, and none of you are new practitioners, but it's um, things that happen over and over to all of us as part of our path. The sine wave are equally valid parts of the path. There's no such thing as only up. 
and no down. And the down isn't some kind of a mistake to get rid of so we can have just ups. They're equally, they're equally the path. And so I want to talk just a little bit about different ways, the way, ways, and I'm sure you can come up with more of your own, that we, what I call, hit the wall. Which is, hit the wall isn't just like, I'm so sick of this. Hit the wall is like, I can't do this anymore. Or more like, I won't do this anymore. And I don't mean just a mood, you know, a little bit of five-minute mood. We all have those. I mean a deep level of um, despair or doubt or your motivation drops out or whatever. And what's really going on, because this goes on the whole, the whole path, is that, again, our views are being challenged. The views, and we keep talking, that came up a lot this morning. And our views are being challenged. Our personality views, the views that Winnie talked about the other night about what we want to happen. But even more, subtly held views about what, what is and is not the path. What is and is not supposed to be our practice. Views we don't even know we have. And um, it's hard. And it's hard for everybody. And no one doesn't experience this sometimes because that's how it is. And the sense of when the times when it's free and open and we really know, even if it's for a tenth of a second, we really know it doesn't matter what's happening. Absolutely no exceptions. It doesn't matter. There's consciousness, awareness, and things happening, and that is it. We really know that. And then in this trough, it's like you thought you knew it. You can't get there. And this really is, you know, use your own words for what it is for you, but different. But it's something to really um, consciously bring in a little bit more. So when our views are being challenged, first knowing that It's a paradox because no thought, no view can adequately hold or describe reality. Can't. Impossible. And yet our main tool is thoughts and views. And like when when Andre was talking talking about views this morning and that we use views. No one's saying we don't use views. It's the attachment to them, the belief in a view that we don't even know that's defining our world that when it gets challenged, it just sends us around the bend, basically. And the main one, I just want to, I don't want to talk about views a lot, but just a, the main one I want to just refer to, of course, is Sakaya Ditti. Ditti means view. Sakaya Ditti is translated as identity view, personality view. This is the kind of big view that gets us attached to all the other views that we get attached to, kind of in service of our identity view, personality view. And when it's talked about... Um, the first awakening, the eye of the Dhamma awoken in her or in him. And it's like that in the suttas when they're referring to so-called stream entry. One of the things that's seen through is Sakaya Ditti, personality view. Seen through. It doesn't mean it stops arising. <laughs> seen through. Not completely held to and believed without exception anymore. 
So I just want to give a very brief description of it. And Sally's going to talk more about the five aggregates, which is really at the core of it in another talk. But Sakaya Ditti, Identity View. <coughs> Sakaya, Sayada Ulakana, who's a Burmese teacher, we were, we were teaching, Andre and I were teaching with this last month, he defines Sakaya as the stream of mental and physical experience, or the, the mind and matter flux. He kept saying that this time, the mind and matter flux. I love that. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental experience. Just these things happening over and over and over and over and over, right? Like a lot. That's all that's happening. And we're making this, you know, huge stories about it, and that's all that's happening. Those times when the natural phases of life, the natural phases of practice, expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, you know, the day and the night, the tides, the weather, expansion, contraction, that's just how life is. And the so-called expansion phase, the spaciousness, the non-clinging, and the no problem, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, it's coming, it's going, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, whatever it is, that's fine, you know, no problem. Then in the so-called contraction, the Sakaya Ditti is at any moment when any particular uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental experience, emotion, thought, feeling, tone, whatever, is clung to, is identified as being either me or mine. In that moment, identity view is born. And that can just be quick, or mostly what happens is there's a sense of, oh, that, well, we're out walking. There's smells, there's sounds, there's sensation of the breeze, there's pleasant or unpleasant, it's just whatever. It can be very finely noticed or more broadly noticed, that's not to the point. And things are just coming and going, you're walking, it's whatever it is, and suddenly the coolness of the breeze is felt as unpleasant, maybe noticed, maybe not, and there's a sense, ugh, unpleasant, I'm cold. Right then, identity view is born my unpleasantness, my cheek, I'm cold. This experience of cold is happening to me. Well, that doesn't have to be a big deal. I mean, we just see that. But generally, it doesn't stop there, right? It goes on, I'm cold, and I need to do something, and why is it like this, and blah, blah, blah. And then the whole, you know, papancha and thoughts and emotions and the whole story of me arises out of that in a moment, right? You can see that happening sometimes. So... (laughs) But I mean, that's just, that's just what happens. It's okay. We can just notice that. That's part of the expansion contraction. Expand, expand, expand. Ugh, me. Whatever it is. And it's always something different, but we neglect to notice that. So expansion contraction. That's what identity view is. And um, we can just watch it happen. It doesn't have to be a problem. But when it becomes a problem... We could identity view, personality view. I'm using, it, I'm using it a little bit differently. It's exactly the same thing. But I'm going to talk about personality view in the way that Ajahn Sumedho talks about it now. Like moving from the moment when there's just a contraction of clinging around unpleasant sensation or pleasant thought. I, oh, that, it's almost lunchtime, pleasant fall. I'm hungry, I need to go eat, you know. And the whole story that gets created, oh, Oh, I'm hungry again. What's the matter with me? I'm so greedy. And, and, and all I ever do is eat, and I should try and renounce it. You know, and all of this stuff, and all your history, and all of that. That's what I'm going to call personality view. I'm this person who 
has these patterns around food, and I always do, and here I am again, and everybody's watching me, and you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> Personality view. So it's with any particular moment where there's clinging, there's grasping at any of the six sense door experiences, and then it leads to thoughts and emotions, what we call our personality. Now, this is in our common parlance, not so much the, the well, Buddha's way of speaking, would be that the more habitual patterns and emotions and reactions that come up, right? I mean, I think I'm assuming, but most of us, if you say, what's your personality like? We could pull out a few threads of particular patterns that come up a lot. Yes? You can think of a couple. I don't have to say them, but we could think of a couple. They may be nice ones. They may be not nice ones. That's not the point. It's not about good or bad. And then we think, that's me. That's my personality. And we believe that deeply on some level. And that, when the sine wave goes down into the trough, and something's unpleasant, and something's identified with, the sense of identity view is there, the particular patterns and thoughts and emotions that get triggered that catch us are usually one of these familiar strands that we would pull out, that we're familiar with. Generally, okay, it's not going to be the, oh, yes, all is as best as it can be in this best of all possible worlds, you know, and I'm lost in frustration, never mind. Probably not the identity view that we pull out at that time. It's more like, I can't do this. I'm hopeless. I knew I was hopeless. And I had this good time before out of the grace of God, but now it's gone, and now this is what I really know. <laughs> and it's, I'm saying it like it's sort of funny, but we know it's not the least bit funny when it's happening. And even you can describe that it's happening and you know it's happening and you're watching it happen and you can be aware that it's happening. But it's still really me. It's happening too, isn't it? And it's hard. And this is what Ajahn Sumedho says something that I think has really been interesting and helpful to me in this regard. He's talking about he's talking about teaching Westerners because he, you know, practiced in Thailand. He teaches a lot of Thai people, but he was just talking about working with Westerners, kind of American and European culture. And he said for him, he sees that he thinks that self-doubt is one of the biggest hindrance for Westerners in our practice regarding self-doubt about our insights. Are, okay, that's just using language. Self-doubt about the insights and experiences of awareness and the liberating nature of insights that we've all experienced, the liberating nature of awareness that we've all experienced. And he said he thinks, this is his opinion, but he thinks in part we're so prone to, so really riddled by this self-doubt and that it takes such a grip of us because, and this is where he's saying it more in the Western culture, our personalities are so strong and our belief in and our reliance on our personalities is so strong. It's almost like that's really our bottom line belief system. That's where we go for refuge, the kind of steadiness of our personality. Even we might hate our personality. We're totally practicing to change our personality. You know, we want to really get bottom line, isn't it? And, but it's all about the personality. And when, you know, 
the going gets tough and we're caught back in really believing the personality. There's some way almost that's our refuge, he's saying. That's what we get caught. That's the belief system. That's the kaya ditti on a really deep level where we can talk a good line, but somewhere in there we're so caught in believing it. And so he says we just keep getting tricked back into this sakaya ditti, this belief. And this is from this place of reference of sakaya ditti is where we'd be what I say is hitting the wall. It's not the experience that's happening that makes us hit the wall. It's that reference point of sakaya ditti, this is happening to me, I'm doing this, I'm not doing this, I can't do this, whatever. And I mean, we all keep saying this all the time, but just noticing that. So many people have talked about you know, experience, just moments, not even experience, of just such profound tenderness, sensitivity, or ease, or relaxation, or quiet, or all kinds of stuff going on, but it's just no problem, just seeing what's happening. Even seeing, you know, the personality patterns come and just seeing and go, oh, yeah, look at that, you know, I see how the causes that bring it about, I see the effects it goes, no problem. And then when we get somehow really caught, and you can see it coming in because there's a lot of awareness. You can see, oh, this thing triggered, and this thing triggered, and my energy was low, and my back was hurting, and there was a little bit of aversion, and I was a little tired, and I didn't quite notice this thought and that thought and that thought, and the next thing I knew, boom. It's like you can make the whole recipe, you know, and we can see it. And that even undercuts our trust more because we believe so strongly, really personality, that if I see it, that means I should be able to stop it. I am in control here, not. So we then don't believe, we don't trust the wisdom from the tenderness, from the spaciousness, from the whatever it is. It, It could be any experience. There's no particular experience I'm calling good and another one I'm calling bad but the times when the Velcro's not so strong. That one isn't about our personality view, and we don't trust it. That's what Semedo's saying. We get caught back into believing in our personality, really believing in it. And it gets more and more subtle, and there's no way we can describe or have a view that encompasses the breadth of our path. What should happen, what shouldn't happen, everything's going to happen. And all of it's the path, and it's completely different for each one of us. Yeah, there's, there's you know, movements we can see, there's patterns. But the particulars are completely different for everybody. So there's nothing to really compare it to, to prove how useless you are. <laughs> What's happening is all that could be happening. There's no way it can be outside of our path. But our personality view is not a reference point from which we can see that or trust it. So that's so so limiting. This is from a book by about a a Thai woman in the last century who was apparently greatly realized, and she just said at one point, Mechi Kao was her name. She said, everything that makes a person unique changes continually and eventually disintegrates Each personality is constantly ceasing to be what it was and becoming something new. Constantly. 
those factors one tends to conceive of as self are impermanent and fleeting. Everything about bodily form and the mind's thoughts and feelings is without intrinsic stability and bound to dissolve. Just what Andrea was saying last night. But even if within our moment-to-moment thinking and thoughts and emotions and personality, we can see the constant shift. We can see that. We know it. But there's a way that views, when we don't see them, we see the, the inner change, but the big view is, that's all changing, but the big picture is it's all coming back to that same self-judgment, which is my bottom line core pattern, or whatever it is. And it's something uh, Utejania said once, I'm thinking, he was saying, only two things are not impermanent. Nibbana and a concept. You get it? Because a concept freezes. A concept, the concept is coming. The concept solidifies what the concept is of and doesn't let it change. So our concept of our personality does that. So notice, when the Sakaya Ditti comes in, when it's just starting or when it's strong, notice when it's not there. And notice, as Buddha Dasa said, so he said, the sense of self is simply a condition that arises when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. That's all. It's just another arising appearance. There's grasping and clinging, boom, sense of self, fine. That, you know, that's the effect of grasping, so what? Goes away the grasping and clinging, the sense of self goes away. A hundred million times a day, so what? You know, we breathe so many times a day, fine. You know, coming and going. But we make this big hoo-ha because of the, this kind of uh, belief in our personality. So... I just wanted to talk then a, um, a couple of examples of hitting the wall. As I said, there's, you can all come up with your own. And again, it's not just hard, but when we really somehow feel so discouraged, we're losing our motivation, we really believe I can't do it. So that's one of the big ones, the first one. I had it, but now it's gone. I knew how to do it, but it's gone. I, and I, it just proves I can't do this. I really can't do it. That's what Zameda was talking about, our self-doubt. There's a sutta from um, the time of the Buddha. I really like it because it kind of points to this isn't a new thing, really, about a man named Asaji, a monk, a well-realized monk who was uh, very ill, probably dying. And the Buddha comes to him, and he asks him a bunch of questions, but the gist is he's saying, I hope you are not troubled by remorse and regret, you know, as he's dying. I hope that, you know, your mind is and heart is, is clear. And Asaji says, I actually have quite a lot of remorse and regret. And the Buddha says, is it about your virtue? You know, about something you've done? He says, oh, no, it's not that. He says, then, then wh- why are you troubled if you have nothing to reproach yourself for in regard to virtue? You know? And he says, well, formerly, Venerable Sir Buddha, when I was ill, I was able to keep on tranquilizing the bodily formations. In other words, he could get calm and concentrated. But now I cannot obtain concentration. I mean, the guy's dying, right? And this is what he's upset. And as I do not obtain concentration, it occurs to me, let me not fall away. He's really afraid. He's falling away from the path because he can't get concentrated while he's dying. You can relate, huh? It's like really, oh my God. And when our personality views 
are turned towards what's happening in our practice, which is what starts to happen here. It's like, it's like magnified. It's like, oh my God, this is the most important thing to me, and I can't do it. This is proof I can't do it. And what am I going to do if this is, you know, and so it's huge. And he's dying, so add that on top of it. It's your last moment, and you can't do it, and there's no other. So, of course, the Buddha says, he says, Asaji, those ascetics, those Brahmins who regard concentration as the essence and who identify concentration with, you know, asceticism, with the path, failing to obtain concentration, they might think, let us not fall away. He says, what do you think, Asaji? He's like, haven't I told you? <laughs> Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. <coughs> Therefore, seeing this, he understands, you know, this cannot be relied upon. There's no more of this. And he goes through, you know, all the aggregates, form, which is the body, pleasant feeling, um, perception, consciousness, mental formation. They're all impermanent. You can't rely on any of them. So he's basically saying, okay, so you can't concentrate. That's just a mental formation that comes and goes based on conditions. It doesn't mean you are falling away from the path. It just means conditions have changed right now. So we don't always have the Buddha to come and remind us. (laughs) But the fact that even at that point, a monk who had been practicing with the Buddha and had a lot of understanding could still fall into that when he was close to death just shows how deep we, this pattern can be, and how it's not, it's not a, a small thing to keep deeply running into the identification and the power that this identification can have with our, our deeply habituated self-doubts, fears, pains. It's not, you just see it a couple times and la la la, you know, and it's going to keep on showing up in different ways. That's not something you're doing wrong. It is the path. So that's one way we hit the wall. I can't, I can't do it, and I could before. Sometimes, it's again what I was saying, we, we've seen our patterns, our really suffering patterns, quite a bit. We're quite familiar with them. And they come again, and as I was just saying, we see the whole thing. You can you know, label the whole thing, but not only is it happening, It's happening with awareness. And so not only do we feel the pain of it, we feel the pain of knowing that I shouldn't be doing this anymore. I've seen it enough. So we add the pain of humiliation, and we add the pain of I can't do it properly. And it's just, I I don't even want to look at this anymore. I can't face this another moment, you know. As if there was anywhere to go, and there's not. So that's really the despair, because you know if you walk out of here, it's walking out with you. But there's this (laughs) sense of... I can't look at it anymore. And there's times, of course, when everything, the fear or the pain or the frustration or whatever, is, as we say, overwhelming, stronger than the mindfulness, and it's skillful means to change the channel, to do metta or brighten the mind or take a walk. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, on such a deep level, we say, I, it's hopeless. You know, I just can't do it anymore, like hitting a wall. This is where patience, the Three types of transcendent patience. Patience when wronged, patience to bear hardships for the Dhamma, and patience to keep meeting the profound truth without giving in to fear. 
over and over. The profound truth doesn't always look beautiful and lovely. The profound truth could be plumbing the depths of your despair in a particular moment as well. Another place is sometimes it's an intimation. It isn't obvious. You don't, you're not recognizing what the pattern is. But things have been going well. And then it changes. Okay, this happens all the time. And usually a lot of thinking starts. Things get really scattered. You get really confused. You don't know what's going on. And you know you didn't do anything different. And I like to call that a transition time when usually something is about to come up. We never know what. It's usually something we'd rather not know what, you know. (laughs) But sometimes it's just this intimation of either a pattern or a fear or a grief or just something about ourselves. We don't really know what it is, but the habit of our life has been to keep it down, you know. The habit of our life has been around denial of this, which may have been skillful at the time. That's nothing about skillful or not, but for now, that's not needed. But the habit of denial, the habit of, I don't want to feel this, I don't want to be, is so strong that all kinds of behaviors have been um, promulgated over our life to basically distract the mind from feeling this thing. And so when it comes up, and it could be like some kind of primal fear, it could be, you know, some deep uh, loneliness, it doesn't necessarily have to be a traumatic memory. It could be, but it doesn't have to be that at all. It's just something that our so-called personality patterns have been built around. I don't want to have to feel that. And for me, I noticed it was like the, the thought was, I'll die if I have to feel that. You know, that's as if. And then all these kind of basically stupid, not very nice behaviors to keep myself from having to feel it. You get into all kinds of you know, arguments with people and running away from things and doing this and doing that and creating all kinds of complications in one's life. Not to feel a feeling, which when I actually feel is like, oh, well, that's really intense. Okay, I can feel that. It's like a huge relief. But anyway, when it's just there and we don't know what it is and the mind doesn't know and we don't have any kind of um, clear intellectual understanding, the sense is, I'm out of here. I'm so out of here. There's no way I want to get anywhere near to this. And we can't even quite, can't even quite say it clearly. Or something really difficult comes up, and we know it. But that personality view of, I can't. I just can't be with this, which is the old belief system. I can't. There's no way I can't. And it's almost as if at that point, the sense of our limitations, our personality limitations are so strong. Well, I just can't do that. There's no way I could meet that. You know, that sense of the box that I said is something says we make for ourselves out of our sense of ourself. So I just can't. And we don't almost have the courage to really own our aspirations, to really own our motivation, to really say, you know what? I can. I don't know how or when or how it's going to show up, but I can come back and be here for it. Almost like sometimes we're afraid to, to really consciously acknowledge to ourselves the power of our motivation and commitment, because then what if we've really acknowledged we're going for it with everything we have and we still fail? 
So almost better not to try. I mean, it isn't better not to try, but this is the story, you know. Better just not to really open to it, because I know I can't do it anyway. So why even beat my head against the wall? And I know, so just let's just keep on kind of practicing around the edges, you know. And it's pretty good, and it's good enough. And that's actually another place. It's good enough. Upandita called this stopping within. He would always say, don't stop without, like it's too hard, we want to give up. And don't stop within, which means, okay, it's pretty nice now. You know? And a lot of us, I mean, I think many of us, when we first come to practice, of course we have no clue what we're getting into, because who would if you knew? And, <laughs> but, and we want somehow to be happier, more at ease. I mean, that's normal. And so not even knowing the vastness, maybe, of what we're getting into, of course our motivation is going to be somewhat limited. That's normal. And it might be, you know, some personality thing, some sense of ease, some particular suffering goes away, whatever. And it may be that that actually happens. Life gets easier. Or you understand something. Or it's just, you know, it's enough equanimity. It's, you know, mellow enough. I, I can deal now. And the motivation just drops out. Okay, stopping within. And that can be on many levels. That can be on just as good enough for now. I'm not suffering too much. I've spent years like that. Oh, I'm equanimous. Things are equanimous. I'm kind of practicing, but not really with that complete abandon, so to speak. But of course, luckily, something always happens to prick the bubble (laughs) if you're just somewhat awake. And so the stopping within can be all the way up to really deep levels of absorption and really strong insights. And I think James, I think James referred to that in his talk, where the Buddha said one thing he never lost sight of was never to be satisfied with less than complete liberation of heart and mind. And so we may not, may not know, we may think we have complete liberation of heart and mind, but all we have to do is just keep noticing, just keep being honest, just keep being aware. And that's what we would do anyway. Liberated or not liberated, that's what we're going to keep doing. And if we keep doing it, sooner or later, if it ever happens that greed or aversion or confusion arises again in your mind, you'll notice it. And then great, you're noticing it, you're happy to notice it, and you keep on paying attention. So that's stopping within. And one last thing, I don't know if I can quite explain it. It's sometimes... I think I called it the other night uh, Chogim Trungpa's phrase, nostalgia for samsara. And it's kind of when, not when we're in a deep, deep difficulty, but as practice is going along and you're really quite deep in the practice, you're not feeling the sense of struggle so much. But there's periods where you just start to or continue to feel the possibility, just opening to moments when that personality view isn't really so operative. And even though the moment in itself is just what it is, peaceful or joyful or whatever, it doesn't matter. But then when, when we kind of come back a little into the personality, there can often be this sense of, oh, but what about, you know, these all, all kinds of projections. I don't know if I want liberation if it means I have to give up my family, you know. And we realized that Buddha didn't have a family, so I have to give up my family. Or I can't be in a committed relationship, you know, like someone said today. Or it means I can't appreciate art anymore. I can't be creative. Or, 
you know, I'll never like chocolate again, or, you know, just, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's kind of silly, but it's just, oh no, I don't want if it means I have to. But it's just our mind making stuff up and projecting it. And then, no, it's like, I want to go back to the pleasure garden. I don't want to renounce this stuff. I don't want to give up this stuff. And you can't make me, you know. <laughs> Nostalgia for some sorrows, just all the dull grayness. And I found in myself often in, in different periods in my life, it's almost like a grief, like a mourning. It really feels like that for some, I couldn't even say what, but some aspect of my personality that feels so familiar. And it doesn't even go anywhere, that's the thing. But it feels like something, some attachment to it is dying. Some deep belief is getting less. And it's almost like it's an old, comfortable cloak, and we just want to hold on to it, even though it's ratty and moldy and stinky and, you know, no, it's just so comfortable. And it's almost like a mourning of something. There's times I've really felt that, you know. That's okay, mourning. Mourning is like this. We say, no, just that nostalgia for some sorrow. Don't want to let it go. Even we don't like it. You know, people often say they see they're in a deep suffering pattern. They recognize it. They can name it. There's just some little piece that's like, but still, who would I be without this? So sometimes it's like really bizarre how we're holding on. So just noticing all these ways. And then just the last one I want to mention is, again, I said you have your own, which we've actually already spoken about in uh, some of the impermanence talk as well. This one is one where the, the kind of fear that comes up after an insight into there is nowhere to land, everything's changing, there is no self, whatever. And that just sometimes that's very liberating and sometimes fear comes up with it and sometimes we get lost in the fear. But mostly people hear that and they think, well, that's the one I want. I want to be, you know, have that kind of fear. But that can stop us too. That can stop us, too, if we start thinking about it. Again, all the projections of the the annihilation. And the other one, in terms of practice, is when we have an idea of choiceless awareness, and it's just things coming and going, that openness that I was talking about, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. It's very nice, or it's fast, or whatever, but there's a way we think, oh, now this is what it is. This is how things are. Everything's just coming and going, and there's no me, and now I know how it is, and it's going to stay this way. And then it doesn't stay that way. It gets completely chaotic. You think, well, this isn't choiceless. This isn't how it is. It's chaos. It's not supposed to be chaos. It's supposed to be do, 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 (laughs) or else really concentrated, not like stuff all over and chaos, and I can't tell what's happening. This can't be right. I can't do it. And we're back there again. But that's the other thing I like to say. Samsara is messy. It's not going to get all neat and tidy because we meditate. As it just gets, you just see how chaotic things are. In terms of a reference point of me, we never know what's going to happen. That's what Andrea was saying, and it never stays the same, ever. Doing your practice right doesn't mean now stuff stays the same. It doesn't mean even the patterns stay the same. Constant flux, expanding contraction. And so it's so hard sometimes. Freedom from clinging, which is really the seed of freedom, freedom from clinging, is uncompromising. 
It's not freedom from clinging to most things, but a few things kind of can stay familiar. Freedom from clinging is completely uncompromising, and we can't imagine what it's like because we can only imagine what we already know. You know, Krishnamurti's famous, famous phrase, freedom from the known. Or the Buddha saying, in terms of a sense of self, it's always unsatisfactory because for in whatever way you conceive of it, the fact is always other than that. Whatever way we conceive of our sense of self, the fact is always other than that. But we keep on this personality wanting to land somewhere and falling into this, hitting this wall. Me hitting the wall. Just don't know. Enlightenment is not a self-improvement project. It's not, nothing about non-clinging confirms and justifies and props up the sense of me or my personality. And we can't imagine from the view of our personality what that's like. And so when we're in that hitting the wall, knowing that that sense of personality is always the reference point when we're feeling we're hitting the wall like that. We're looking at what's wrong, what's wrong. Nothing's wrong. We're just evaluating it from some standpoint that's completely unreliable. But it's so, at times, familiar and subtle. That's what Semedo says. We're so caught back into it, we don't recognize it. Stephen Batchelor, I love the way he says stuff. He says, emptiness is not just an experience of oceanic bliss. It is a falling apart of all of our strategies of self-interest, self-centeredness, and seeming protection. And although freeing, this falling apart of all our strategies evokes great kind of disconcertion, dis-ease, sometimes fear, like being in a no-man's land without reference points. And now here in practice, all our strategies, our personality patterns of self-interest, of self-interest, of self-centeredness, of seeming protection, these are, are coming into play around mostly your actual meditation practice. And we can easily tend to overlook that that's what's happening and get so focused on how we're practicing and what we're doing and what's arising that we just say, oh, yeah, right. I can't trust any view I have about what should be happening and what I can do and what's right in this term when, when you're caught. I don't mean we can't use skillful means. Of course we can. But that's not with this view of, if I do this, then it's going to be like that. If I do this, I'll get rid of this frustration. If I do this, it'll get back to openness. If, you know, you can feel, it's, it's not the words, it's the energy in the mind from wanting, from aversion, from it's all about me getting it together, unreliable. Can't trust any idea we have of skillful means when the motivation is greed, aversion, or me, me, me. We just can't see clearly, that's all. But this is hard for us. I mean, that our strategies all fall apart. And still, we somehow have to find the motivation, find the trust, find the commitment to keep on opening with total commitment into this next moment of the unknown. And it's unknown. As as much as we up here blah, 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 you know, about the 
the way and the path and the way it can go and all the things we read. And that can support us, that can be information, but again, it's completely different in each moment for each of us. And all we can do is say, how can I summon up the courage, really like undaunted courage, to open again into this moment with total commitment? And sometimes it's the one thing we think we don't ever want to be with, the thing we're practicing not to ever have to be with, is the thing that we have to open into. Because that's what's happening. That's our path at this moment. Did um, maybe a, a lot of you saw that movie um, Touching the Void? About these, it was about two. It was a recreation of something that happened maybe 20 years ago, of two friends who were mountain climbing, really high mountains in in the Andes in South America, and they were coming down together. And um, I'll try and make this short, but they so they're roped together. And they're coming down, and um, they kind of slide, and one of them falls over the edge of the side, hanging over this huge void. And they're tied together. And the other guy's trying to pull him up, pull him up. I mean, for hours, can't pull him up. He's getting slowly, slowly, slowly dragged over to the edge. So what is, you know, and so at some point he made the decision, and he cut the rope. So the guy who cut the rope, he, and he went over and looked down, and the, his friend had fallen into a deep crevasse. There's no way he could get to him. So the guy who cut the rope went on back. Then what happened, the guys in the crevasse, which is, you know, big, big, big hole in the ice. And this is, in, in the movie, it looks as if it was the Himalayas. I mean, it's that level of mountain climbing. He's in this deep crevasse, and he'd broken his leg. So he's in a lot of pain. And he's on a little ledge, and it keeps on going down. And he's on this ledge for hours, like 12 hours, 24, I can't remember time. Can't get back up. No way he can get back up. And he's just there, no water, no food. He's broken his leg. And he's, he said, and after 12 or 24 hours, he said, what do I do? You know, I've got to do something. And he said he had a deep, being in the crevasse and going deeper in the crevasse was like he had a, such a deep primal fear of going down deeper into that crevasse. He just could not imagine ever doing it. But he said, at the same time, he said, I can't just abdicate. I have to do something. And the only thing he could do was with his rope, kind of secure it and lower himself deeper into the crevasse. So he did that. No idea if it was just going to go on forever and if he was lowering himself into the thing that he feared even more than the position he was in now. And he did it. He said, I can't abdicate, you know. And as it turned out, he went down and he hit ground and he could kind of go up a slope. And he, remember, he has a broken leg. He has had no food or water for like 24 hours. And it's an amazing story. It takes him like two or three days to drag himself over boulders and through horrible terrain. And he's completely getting, you know, completely getting um, out of it, you know, like kind of hallucinatory by the end of it. But he just barely manages to make it back before he dies. And his friend had been waiting four days, never thought he was alive, and was just about to leave. It's, an, it's really a kind of intense movie, but it really happened, and they're having a... <laughs> it's intense. <laughs> and they have the two guys who did it are kind of talking, too. So. But that sense of, you know, the most scary, self-perpetuating experience, but sometimes it's like that. Do we just open into it, or do we just freeze on, on, on the crevasse? And I just want to say nobody here is freezing on the ledge, because you're still here. And awareness is going. You're not creating awareness. Mindfulness is happening. You're noticing what's happening. 
you don't have to fix it. You just have to keep being willing to be awake. Everything else is doing itself. But sometimes that being willing to stay awake is really, really hard. And so you have to finding how do we how do we find that? I just don't advocate. And we find that way to really make that commitment. And then, and I'm not trying to be discouraging, I'm trying to just be straight. Over and over we need to do that. It's not just once. And it's about all different kinds of things. Even Ajahn Sumedho, who talks so much about having trust and confidence and awareness, that's kind of his thing. He's always talking about it. And we were meeting with him, some of of the teachers, a couple years ago, and he was describing a period of uh, some years ago uh, at Amravati, where he's the abbot, and where it was an extremely difficult period between all the Sangha members, the nuns and the monks and him, and a lot of he, was, he being the head and making decisions, he was getting a lot of blame, a lot of uh, criticism. And he said, my personality hates that. You know, I, I hate being blamed and criticized. And he was just you know, shrinking and, and fearing it and getting, just doing what he needed to do, but you know, a little bit getting caught in it. And, he said he, and he's always talking about, as I said, having confidence and awareness. And he said, this really went in for me. I, I don't know if it will communicate to you. He said, at some point through this whole process, which went on for weeks and weeks, he said, he realized, he said, I just made a determination, an absolute determination that my confidence is in awareness, not in my personality. And, you know, he knows this and been talking about it for years. At this point, in a really heavy time, he's called up all his clarity, all his clear intention, saying, my confidence is in awareness not in my personality. Like just reminding oneself. We have to keep reminding ourselves. It doesn't go on automatic pilot. And uh, I don't know, somehow that really inspired me. And so as I said, I don't mean to be discouraging. It's like the expansion contraction, you know. We, we come to a place where we have to, you know, lower ourselves into the crevasse. We find that commitment to just open into this next unknown just wholeheartedly, and let it be what it is. It might be fine for a while, the regular ups and downs, and we come to another one. But it's not the same us coming to the same place. Because what I found for this practice is, is it keeps going. It may even be harder as we keep going. We, we're hitting into more difficult stuff that we've been able to see before. But it's met with a deeper faith because there's a deeper wisdom, a deeper understanding. Sort of like, you know, People say, I, I keep coming to seeing these same things I've seen before, but in a different way. It's kind of spiraling deeper and deeper. So the, I don't know if this helps, but to me this is kind of like an allegory that helped. Uh, a couple years ago, I, was, I had the flu for a few weeks, and all I could do was just lie around on my couch, and so I was watching a lot of videos. And I ended up watching the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy again, you know, just all three of them, you know, Frodo, Lord of the Rings. All, I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. But what I was so struck by, more than before, was, how, was what an allegory Frodo's journey is for our, our spiritual path, for our practice of how it keeps spiraling deeper and deeper. So I'm just going to go into it a little bit, if you'll, if you'll uh, let me. And what, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so, like in the beginning, when, 
you know, when, when, the, when Frodo has to take that ring of power and Gandalf the wizard comes and tells him he has to go outside of the little hobbit town he lives in and go to Bree. He's doing that on bright faith, what you'd call bright faith, because he trusts Gandalf. He doesn't have a clue what's going on in the world or really what the danger is or anything. But Gandalf tells him this. He trusts Gandalf. He thinks it'll be an adventure going outside of Hobbiton. He goes with his friends. And before he even gets to the little town of Bree, he's already run into danger like he never even knew existed in the world, in a safe little world, right? These, these black riders are coming and trying to get them. And they finally get to this place. He's like, oh, my God, that was a huge adventure. But finally, I can hand this thing off to Gandalf, and I'm done, right? And, of course, he gets there, and Gandalf has disappeared. And he has no clue what to do. And there's danger all around, and he has to make the decision to trust some weird guy. He doesn't know who he is. And, the guy, and he, he does some things that are stupid, and the guy is like threatening him, and they almost get killed that night. And finally, the guy, Aragorn, says, okay, you have to come with me. We have to go to the elves. And so they go out again, and they're really being pursued this time. It's really dangerous, and they're having to actually fight. You know, and these little hobbit guys, they never fought. And they're, they're having to actually fight with swords, these huge black wraiths, you know, that can't be killed any. And Frodo is, is stabbed. He almost dies. And it's, it's more than he ever could have imagined that he could ever live through or do, you know. And somehow, really almost having no choice, just getting carried along. And finally, they, the Aragorn gets them to the elves, and they're in a place of more beauty, like Deva realm, like he never expected, never thought was in the world. And at this point, you know, good and evil are so obvious at this point. You know, the elves are so beautiful. Rivendell is so beautiful. The Black Riders are so evil. And they're so, you know, the horses are all foaming. And, you know, it just, it's pretty clear who's good and who's bad, you know, so far. So he gets to the elves, and it's like, oh, I've done the hero's journey more than I could ever do. And now I'm in this most beautiful place, and he meets his uncle, who he thought was dead, and all this stuff. And then it turns out, it's just beginning. It's just beginning, you know? And this has to be carried, you know, to the, this, the land of evil to be destroyed. And it turns out he's the one who has to do it. And he has to volunteer to do it. No one tells him he's the one to do it. It becomes really clear. So at this point, he has a bit more wisdom as to the importance, as to, you know, the importance of of good and the importance of what he's doing and also of the threats that's facing him. So he has more courage than he ever had in the beginning to stand up and say, okay, you guys are all arguing. I see I have to do it. Still not really having a clue, but a little more sense of this isn't just a lark. And then, you know, the seven guys come and are all going to help and go together. So you have a sense of togetherness and go through that. And right away, the leader disappears, Gandalf, and they go through all kinds of more and more difficult stuff until finally one of the company turns on Frodo, and he sees he can't even trust the company he's with. And then he has to make the decision to go completely by himself, off across the river, into this land of Mordor, this little guy, no clue what he's doing, but he knows enough now to be scared to death <laughs> and to know he has no clue. And he's exhausted. He can't trust anyone. He sees that. But his faithful companion comes with him, so they go... And, you know, it just keeps going from bad to worse, right? And it's like every day, once they're in order, he has to keep making the decision. They get up off the rocks and the steam and that little slimy golem's following and <laughs> how to keep going, you know? How to keep going. 
And it's like, it's, it's not like a one-time decision. And each time it's harder. But the stakes are higher. And somewhere along in there, it's so clear. He gets it really clear. I'm never going to live through this. At some point, it starts to get clear that the only way he can keep doing is because his motivation has shifted to really care of the world, you know? It's not longer about being the hero or having a lark or not letting down his friends. He's really seeing, you know, for some reason, this is where I am, and I have to do this for, for all beings, basically. And at the same time, as he's going, the evil outside and all the good stop, stops being so separate, you know, that the, the difficulty starts turning inwards on him, and after a while, it starts eating away on him from the inside. And so there's not this separation of the evils out there and we're all the good ones going to do this thing, you know. It's turning in and the ring's taking over and he can't see clearly and he turns on his friend and he believes, you know, the lying voice of Gollum and it's just barely dragging himself up there. But the only way is the, the harder it gets, the deeper he has to go into his own experience of confusion and delusion and evil and anger and fear but there's still a deeper faith and wisdom that keeps him going, keeps him going, even when he knows he's going to die. And then even at the very end when he's going to throw it in, he can't do it all by himself. It really isn't about him doing it by himself. You know? And that the whole, who knows, you know, he kept sparing this, that creature Gollum when his companion wanted to get rid of him, when everyone else wanted to get rid of him. He kept sparing him, and Gollum turned on him and almost had him killed. But at the end, if it hadn't been for that creature coming and, you know, trying to take the ring and biting off his finger, he never would have been able to let go. So you never know. The unknown, you never know. But I just, I loved it, that sense of how the deeper you go, you never had a clue when you started. And it gets harder and harder and more and more touching us internally. It takes so much more courage. But the courage is there because the faith is stronger, because the wisdom is deeper. And that's how our, our practice keeps going like that. Keep, our life keeps going like that. And for each of us, it's going to take a different turn. We never know which is the turn around the corner for us. How to keep finding the wisdom, the courage, the humility. So just to remember that it's different for everyone and it's hard for everyone. You know, the um, Buddha Dasa likes to talk about Nibbana for everyone. But it's hard for everyone. When we get too lost in our hitting our own wall, widen, just widen your gaze a little and realize this is just this particular personality representative of, of all beings. You know, This is my difficulty I'm coming up against, but it's just the representative for all beings in all our different ways. Can I just, just for this moment, find the courage to open into it again? Into it again. I just, I just want to, I'll just end with an um, example of how it's hard for all beings and we don't know, we never know, what manifestation our path is going to take, how our deepening wisdom and compassion and courage and difficulty is going, what direction it's going to take us, how we're going to show up in the world. There's no template of how you should act or how we should live or how our uh, awakening should manifest, but it does. So maybe some of you have seen this film called, um, it's called Blessings, about Sotni Rinpoche and some women going to 
see some nuns in Tibet that something had been kind of responsible for, called the, the nuns of Nangchen. So they traveled to this area of Tibet. Now, it's now in the last couple of years. Remote area of Tibet. And there, where there had been a series of 40 nunneries with all these nuns doing really you know, heavy-duty practice. And during the Cultural Revolution, all the 40 nunneries uh, were destroyed. And the nuns had to disperse. Some of them were killed. Some of them went back to their families or regular life. And some uh, were sent to work camps. And a few went way, way, way even higher up into caves in the mountains and just kind of did their own practice way, way up there, kind of in hiding. But for all of them, whatever, it was really tough times. Starvation. The ones who were back with their families had to, be, had to act like normal people and be like secret yogis. You know, They couldn't um, show that they were practicing, but they were committed. Very tough, horrible conditions, a lot of starvation, a lot of difficulty. And just in the last few years, they've been able to start coming out. The nuns who were up in the hills have started coming down. The ones who were living with their families have started coming back out. And by hand, they're rebuilding nunneries to live in. And they showed this. I mean, it's pretty intense. They're dragging all this stuff up these huge, you know, mountains. And I can't even imagine, you know, the suffering that they had to go through and that was their particular path. But just I just want to leave you with this image from the, the very end of the movie. They go up to meet who they say is one of the oldest of the nuns, or they think she's the most realized, and they go up to some little hut that she agrees to see them. She looks ancient, you know, 10 million lines in her face. She's had a really hard life. She could be 120 or she could be 35, who knows. But, <laughs> you know, and she'd been starvation. She was lying down. You couldn't tell if, if she actually was disabled and had to lie or she was just lying but she, and just spinning her prayer wheel, spinning her prayer wheel. And of course, since she was you know, the oldest, most realized nun, her eyes are filled with light, her face is filled with light. She's just spinning her, wheel, her prayer wheel nonstop. She says, it seems like she just lies there all day spinning her prayer wheel and said, well, my mind, all that's in my mind is just prayers for the happiness and well-being and freedom from suffering of all beings. I thought, wow. What a way to spend your day. <laughs> what a way, you know? And just who knows how her circuitous path took her to that, buried somewhere way up in Tibet where nobody knows. And she's just every moment of the day spinning her prayer wheel and sending out prayers for the well being of all beings. Just, we never know. But stuff like that helps me refine my commitment when I feel like I can't do it. We can do it. Because we don't have to do it. It does itself. We just have to keep showing up. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.